when you work in class, the first thing that you're told is people like you don't become writers. Then the next thing you're told is people like you don't read books like that. Hello and welcome back to The Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Uh, the person you just heard speaking was the absolutely wonderful Carmen Marcus. I got to corner her this week to ask her about her book, How Saints Die. Now, Daisy Johnson, who you might have heard on this podcast a few weeks ago, described Carmen's book in a way that I really love, so I'm going to share that with you now. What a glorious, beautiful sea shanty of a book this is. A fairy tale of wild, sea-swept children and wolfish fear. How Saints Die follows Ellie, who grows up on the North Yorkshire coast, as she asks every question under the sun, except the question, where have they taken her mum? She lives with her fisherman father, Peter, and makes a few enemies and some friends along the way. And Karma's book is so rich with imagery and darkness and comedy that I just had to pull her in and chat to her. Carmen brought a VIP guest into the studio with her, uh, her son Magnus, who is about 18 months old. So if you hear a little gentle wolf howl in the background, uh, that's the very marvellous Magnus. We talk getting into the mind of a 10-year-old, working class voices, and how to weave mythology into your work. So Carmen, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us today on the Vintage Podcast. I'm very excited to have you. My pleasure. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I kind of, I just absolutely absorbed your book. I think I read it in about 24 hours. <laughs> I was just like pushing people aside, being like, not today, I'm reading this book. Um, I absolutely loved it and I loved how poetic it was and how much it, it kind of flowed together. Um, it seems like stories have played quite a big part in your life, just as they have in Ellie's life, the main character. Can you tell us a little bit about how that started, like the first time you kind of started hearing stories and, and absorbing them maybe in a different way that other people did and, and that journey to becoming a writer? It's great that you should ask that and then that idea, writer. The mm. first time I heard stories, I, I sometimes I call myself a storyteller because the first time I heard stories, um, they were spoken. So my mum is Irish Catholic from Donegal. So she is brilliant with story she's one of 10 children and what my sister and I would beg for on a night time for bedtime stories tell us mum tell us about when you were little because she grew up on an army base called Dunry Fort and her and her 10 brothers and sisters got up to some death defying feats and we loved hearing about them so they were the kind of the first stories that we had heard growing up and I would beg for and I'd never want them to end I also noticed that they were growing and changing and I kind of realised that stories didn't necessarily need to be true or replicated. They could be played with and you can play up or down the drama, mostly up the drama for my mum. <laughs> Emphasis on the drama. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then uh, my dad um, was a fisherman and again, a Yorkshire fisherman. So these are very, very superstitious people. Mm. So your whole life is based around these stories that keep you safe or warn you about the power of the sea. And he, my dad would tell me made-up stories, like the story that appears in the book, um, which is when my great-great-grandfather caught a sea god in the nets. That was our family story that we were told. Story. Yeah, absolutely. And um, when, when you've got... So my dad was a fisherman. He was in the Navy. His brothers were fishermen and in the Navy and then worked on the lifeboat and had people... And my family have been um, pilot cutters and worked on the tugboats. 
and we haven't lost anyone at sea and that whole story that tells you your family is protected at sea by a sea god wow that that seems real so that line between real and fantasy really gets blurred when you're told that story from a young age and then you kind of see the truth of it as you grow up so the first stories that I encountered were spoken were bedtime stories were I don't want to go to sleep I'm not remotely sleepy tell me another tell me another Mm -hmm. stories and then from there it was just a and next, my next miraculous discovery was some people wrote their stories down in books with pictures. Sometimes they popped up. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, that was it was a leap from oral storytelling mm. to, to book storytelling. But I love it when people read their stories out aloud. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting as well the way you kind of weave the idea of growing up with a sense of religion and those kind of stories and then the fairy tales as kind of... <laughs> almost meshing together for children and not being able to separate it in the way maybe an adult mind would. How did you decide what kind of fairy tales to pick and what kind of saintly kind of thing is to, like, how did you kind of select those? And do you think that you put more saint stuff in there or more fairy tales? And was that conscious? It was, it was definitely a conscious decision. I love, I love fairy tales and I was, I was brought up Catholic, but I'm very, very, very lapsed um, now. But I think when, growing up um, as a child, those saintly stories feel as mystical and magical as the fairy stories. And what I love about the Catholic faith is this idea that the unreal can be made manifest. So that's the essence of magic is that at any point in time something imagined could become real Mm. and that's writing too so kind of it all fitted together searching for the fairy tales was an interesting quest and searching for the saints tales was an interesting quest in terms of what um what i wanted and what stories i wanted to tell um i've always been drawn to the story of saint catherine her rejection of uh, of a forced marriage and and what her independence meant to her and how far she was willing to defend that really spoke to me about the kind of woman that not just Ellie was, but the kind of woman that Kate was, and that influenced Kate's name, as in St Catherine. Um, Kate, if she had been born 20 years later, probably never would have married. She would have pursued an entirely different kind of life. Mm. Um, so that, so that the independence that saint really, really spoke to me. And then visually picking the other saints, I love the cross of St Andrew, and that just fitted really well for the game that the kids play. Mm. Um, and um, the stoning to death. Gosh, it's sort of, yeah. it all seems so brutal now that I talk about it like this, but it <laughs> no, didn't. But it's, and it's the, the kind of thing of sacrifice and making a deal yeah. with somebody in exchange for something oh, else yeah. as well, isn't it? The kind oh, of gosh. the bartering. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is the essence of Catholicism. Mm. Yeah. You know, you have to, you have to be willing to make the exchange. Mm. Um, and then I kind of wanted the fairy tales that I chose and the myth that I chose to be rooted to the sea. So um, the Selkie myth, um, I drew on a great deal for the development of Kate's character because she very much felt to me like one of those Selkie wives, a woman who's, there's been a theft, a a stealing, a a taming of her that that she didn't, she's given up a part of herself to become a wife and a mother that was too much to give. And that's what those those tales really talk about, that not that there was, you know, anything devastating in, the, in her relationship with Peter. If there was a man for Kate, it was Peter. But I think Kate didn't want marriage. Um, and then I drew upon my own myths and stories from that I heard as a child growing up, the sea god story. Um, and then the wolf of the sea... Um, that idea was 
entirely made up. Except later on I found that sea wolves are real. And um, I remember getting the message from my agent saying, have you seen this article on sea wolves? And then I thought, wow, they're real. It's a sign. The book needs to come <laughs> yeah. into being. It's a sign. Um, and But I kind of created um, a, a mashup of the... Uh, of, of and Norg and the and the horses that live in the water and seawolves because for Ellie and obviously I brought in the Red Riding Hood story for Ellie because this idea of um, the unreal made manifest and sort of borrowing slash stealing from Jeanette Winston the mind will conjure what it needs to survive what Ellie needed was not a horse from the ocean that would come and take her away she needed a wolf something mm. that would fiercely protect her in a way that adults weren't and so I just took co complete poetic license with that. And then during the story's development, I had did a course at Arvon and wandered down in the middle of the night, opened up um, a book of poetry and and found um, the wolves yeah. there. And it just they again, found you. Yeah, they, <laughs> they did. Came hunting for you. They came hunting for mm. me. And then I just couldn't stop seeing them everywhere that I went. And it definitely felt like a sign. They, they wiggled their way into the story. <laughs> We've did. got Magnus here as well. If anybody can hear him on the podcast, Magnus is starring. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about motherhood and how that might have affected your writing or or how you've kind of, I don't know, maybe changed the way you write since or, or how that's played in with what you do. Well, the, the book was five years in development, but mm. um, I found out that I was pregnant a month after um, I just met Kate, my editor, and we'd got the book deal. Mm. So the book and baby are very much two things that have happened at the same time in my life. Um, so from the moment I met Kate, then I was editing, right up until the 4th of December, Magnus was born on the 12th. Oh, wow. So I broke a computer <laughs> trying to balance it on my bum. It just oh. wasn't happening. <laughs> so it went on and then just slid off in that awful crash noise. <laughs> That's like, the kind of thing you have to say in the no. computer shop. It's like, so what happened no. was, <laughs> yeah. I was trying to write while also almost in labour. <laughs> That's it. Because it's, it's very, very difficult to sit at a desk mm -hmm. when you are properly eight months pregnant. Yeah. And there isn't much space left. Um, so did it change it changed the way that I looked at my male characters when I found out that I was having a son because yeah. I started writing to Magnus mm. so it, the book is dedicated to my dad so some ways I was writing to my father in the sense that oh now I understand those things about masculinity that I just couldn't get when I was mm. a kid and then I started writing to Magnus about how I would like him to be with his children um, and about his and how I would like him to relate to his family and not be bound up by and restricted by forms of masculinity that aren't rooted within the family um, and, and that resistance. So in, in many ways, Peter is the kind of man I hope that Magnus can be in that loving, free, childlike way that mm. he is, that Peter is All with his like children. All those positive sides of masculinity. Yeah. And the bits of Fletch that I hope to see in Magnus too. Yeah. So, yeah it did <laughs> Fletch developing into yeah. a Peter. That's it. And th so, yeah, it definitely changed the way that I write it. And it flipped the way, the story that I wanted to tell and who I was telling it to. Yeah, that makes that sense. Um, in your um, kind of, your voice online outside of the writing you talk a lot about working class writers and the importance of them um, how has that 
like affected have you like changed your views after you've gone on or, or what sparked that because i know you you saw you heard kit deval talk about working class writers and and that inspired a bit of a movement can you tell us a bit about that yes it was just it was it was one of those crazy things that happen on twitter at the right time because it picks up on twitter's done a lot of good it really has it really has Mm. and you know that that's in all hats off to to twitter because it brings people together and it picks up on the on 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 a heartbeat of some of things that need to happen so i you know i was i was getting um the word out there about how saints diner and um I, i was beginning to feel a little bit frustrated about where who was listening about to the book where and where it was being received and the story that was being told about the book and that was just bubbling and then I listened to Kit Deval's radio show um, and called Where Are All the Working Class Writers and I, I was honestly sat there crying and shouting at the radio going that's my story that's my story that's what's happening that it was I because you become a when do you become a writer? How do you become a writer? How does that journey start? When you work in class, the first thing that you're told is people like you don't become writers. Then the next thing you're told is people like you don't read books like that. Mm. They don't tell stories like that. The next thing you're told is nobody's interested in your story. Just tell me, I've asked you what you did in the summer holidays. I don't want to hear about sea coaling. I don't want to hear about your mother being ill. Where did you go on holiday? Mm. And it's kind of, so you immediately you're aware from a very, very young age, that there's a legitimate form of storytelling and there's an illegitimate form of storytelling. And then you get to the world of... You finally get a chance to tell your story, sort of like me. Um, You know, I I was fortunate enough to go and do an English degree, but I still didn't feel that my story was valid enough to tell. It took me 20 years to get Mm. to that point. And and then... um, You get to the world of publishing and you see the stories coming out and you think that's those those things aren't aren't telling things the way that I've that I've experienced them or I don't want to hear someone who hasn't experienced my world telling that story or they're telling it wrong um and and you you suddenly realize that there are these walls these silencing walls dropping down around you and what can be done about that and have other people noticed so um I wrote to Kit and said everything you said I felt as a truth um, of my own experience in terms of how I've been held back as a writer. And then not only that, but I didn't even know writing was a valid career. I didn't know there were roots into the industry. I didn't know there were roots into publishing. I didn't know what was happening publishing. That said, I've had masses and masses of support from my agent and from, from Penguin Random House and they've really walked me by the hand through things that I've never experienced. But I didn't grow up knowing any writers. Yeah. And if you're, if you're outside of that world, it's as, it was as difficult for me to become a writer as it is for a fairy tale to become real. That's mm. how I feel. I have achieved a fairy tale. Um, so, so coming back to the, the question, what you're saying is, listen to Kit's show, heard it, wrote to her and said, OK, so that we've got a real problem. Working class writers are not writing their stories because they don't feel that they deserve to and that's the internal narrative Mm. is the biggest obstacle to getting those voices out there as much as there are barriers in the industry the first battle that a working class writer has is with a voice in their head that tells them that people like them shouldn't write 
or don't write or what they have to say isn't important um and then the next thing is understanding how the actually how the industry works when you go to schools where all teachers can teach you is their subject they don't know what happens beyond that so you need the social capital you need contacts you need people to be able to explain those things to you so Yes, in the show, yes, we do. Yes, Magnus Too much feels, attention on mum. Yeah, he feels very strongly about this issue, don't you? Yes, yeah. it's a big thing. So there's kind of like the the issues to solve. I wrote to Kit and said, "Okay, what can we do? What can we do?" And she said, "Well, people like you need to join together." So I was bubbling this through. It's getting close to Christmas, and I saw that Natasha Carthy had started a thread. She'd just written a brilliant article for the Guardian, mm. saying, um, "And Natasha Carthy writes um, young adult fiction at work, with working class issues." And she said that nobody, there were no books on the bookshelf that told my story as a child, so I wouldn't have picked up those books as a child. And I jumped on her Twitter thread and said, yes, I had the same experience as a, as a child. I, I would have loved to have read those stories. It would have legitimised me as a writer if I'd known that. Um, what are we going to do? And she was like, I don't know. And I said, well, should we start a collective? And the next thing I knew, loads of people said, yeah, let's do it. And the next thing I know, we were arranging a meeting in Manchester. My agent was uh, was coming, fully supportive. There were people from industry there. There were writers there. There were academics there. And we sat around the table and, sat, and we, we mapped out what needs to happen that right now um, those ideas are now a funding proposal that we're developing to the next stage with the support of um, New Writing North my Mm. local um, writing development agency because the change does need change really really does need to happen and we need to find a way Mm. of tackling those issues that at at every level that deal with the personal narrative that deal with the class narrative and then also you know looking at the publishing world and doing some education within the publishing world just to see it show this is the journey that working class writers go on to begin to tell their stories so what support what can we do to demystify the industry for them and and help you know let's help to you know as kit said make more room on the shelf yeah definitely Mm -hmm. Um, when it came to your own life, at what at what point did you try and get into the mind of Ellie? Because I, what I love most about Ellie is that she's she's very distinctly herself. Because I think when adults write children a lot, they just write a child and their idea mm-hmm. of a child. But you wrote Ellie, and like Ellie at ten, but she seemed like she'd be the same person at twenty or thirty. Um, how how did you kind of draw on your own like childhood experiences to get in in the mind of her? And like how how do, how did you go about writing a child that was so vivid like that? It was it was one of the most brilliant and wonderful challenges um, to write Ellie because my research was becoming a kid again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the things that I used to do to get back into Ellie's mind was I'd get off the train to go to my mum's house. My mum still lives in the house where I grew up. And I would walk past my old school and I would see what was going on in the playground and it's my old school was a, is, is, is a proper old school building um, red brick scary Victorian kind of place um, and that noise of children in the playground and just walking those steps home back to my mum's house really took me back inside being a child's head I reread the books that I read as a child and loved as a child um, so I went back to reading Robert Westhall. I read um, Alice in Wonderland. I, re- I read the books that I wished I'd read as a child, so Howl's Moving Castle. I read, got into lots of young adult fiction and um, The Rooftoppers and Wolf Wilder. 
So suddenly, my husband finds that he's now living with a ten-year-old girl <laughs> because side effect. Yeah, <laughs> I was I I ate loads of bacon sandwiches and marmalade on toast and just ate the food that I really really loved because it, you have to to get back into th- thinking like a child. You have to get back to those immediate impulses. And I went back to my mum's house and I talked to my mum a lot about how it was to be a child because when. The story is Ellie's dealing with her mum's mental breakdown. And to make that real, adults create a story around mental illness. They try to explain it away. They try to justify it. They um, sort of, they do sofa analysis of it. Children just accept that that is Mm. reality as it is. And they accept the person for who they are. And I couldn't have anything interfere in that relationship between Ellie and Kate. The fear and the wonder of it. So I had to get right back into that mindset. So the way to do it, bacon sandwiches. <laughs> that's the prescribed. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> like one walk to your old school and bacon sandwiches. Yeah, that's Are it. there any other, for people who are trying to write, are there any other bits of advice that you wish you'd known about writing? So I know that you'd written on your blog about um, mm-hmm. giving up books for a week. Yeah. <laughs> and not allowing yourself to read. Are there any kind of other tips like that you might give people? Well, going on a sort of... A, a reading famine's really good because you must you as a, as an avid reader you need to generate your own form of entertainment um read uh, if, if you're trying to write read well and read voraciously because there's nothing like getting lost in the mind mm. of another writer than to inspire you but the story for how saints die um began as I was just, I just remembered walking home from school so vividly and I could see my patent leather shoes, I could see the autumnal leaves on the floor and I just started writing that. So to get yourself, to get writing, just find that one memory that you keep coming back to over and over again and write it. Take those words for a walk and see where they take you. That's perfect advice. Um, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> and thanks for writing the book. It's I've incredible. had real fun. Oh, thank you for reading and appreciating it and loving it and and um, and howling like a wolf. <laughs> oh! <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. How Saints Die uh, is now out in paperback. You must grab yourself a copy. It's got a beautiful kind of um, watercolour front that's just really haunting. Do subscribe if you want to hear more bookish chats like this one and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps more people find the podcast and their future favourite books. So thank you in advance for doing that. Do tweet us your book recommendations at Vintage Books and until next time. Vintage Books.